Yay nay oh man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And somehow I've got a very, very full show for you. The cinematic releases this week were pretty big in varying ways. We have the continuation of a much-loved and recently somewhat controversial franchise in Ghostbusters Afterlife. We have a biopic which I personally was deeply ambivalent about going into it, King Richard, and we also have the Japanese international film Oscar entry this year, the three-hour movie Drive My Car. On streaming platforms, we have the American indie comedy Ride the Eagle, the Slovak art house film Servants, and the Georgian entry to last year's international film Oscar Beginning. And on Netflix, we have another heavyweight contender for the Oscars, or seemingly a heavyweight contender for the Oscars in passing, and also a somewhat trashy thriller in Intrusion. So those are the films I'm going to be giving for reviews to in this episode, but I will remind you that also out this week cinematically is Celine Sciamma's new film Petite Maman which you can hear my full review of in my Film Bath Festival special a couple of episodes ago, but I do thoroughly recommend. It is a sweet and charming, albeit somewhat slight, film, which has a lot to say about parental relationships, a lot to say about growing up, and a lot to say with the ways that little girls interact with the world. And I did find it really, really adorable. So yeah, I do recommend Petite Maman. It is a yay. And that is also out at the cinema this week. And as I said, if you want a fuller review of that, my Film Bath Festival special episode was only a couple of episodes ago. So with that said, and with reviews of Ghostbusters Afterlife, King Richard, Ride My Car, Ride the Eagle, Servants, Beginning, Passing, and Intrusion, let's get on with today's show. Big Screen Ghostbusters Afterlife is... A continuation slash soft reboot of the beloved Ghostbusters franchise, which unfortunately seems to have completely erased from history the female-led Ghostbusters, 
which I find very, very disappointing. I mean, I did kind of like the female Ghostbusters, and I would have really liked to see that continue, particularly for the brilliant performance from Kate McKinnon. But unfortunately, the incel bastards online shot that down because they can't abide women having any power whatsoever. So it got destroyed, which is so unfair. But anyway, that's not this film's fault. This film is directly connected to the original franchise and is being directed by Jason Reitman, a director I really, really like, who shot out of the gate really strongly with his first three films, Thank You for Smoking, Juno, and Up in the Air. And that is the way you start a filmmaking career. All of those films are excellent. All of those films got some level of critical and commercial success and indeed some Oscar nominations. Jason Reitman got a Best Director nomination for both Juno and Up in the Air and also a Best Adapted Screenplay and a Best Picture nomination for Up in the Air. So his first three films were all successes and he established himself as one of the best indie directors in Hollywood. He has tailed off somewhat since then, with most of his films since then being some level of commercial and or critical failure. His film Labor Day got absolutely destroyed. But in this latter period, he has made Tully, which I maintain is also a brilliant, brilliant film, and Charlize Theron really should have got some Oscar love for her performance in Tully. But now this well-established, although somewhat precariously positioned indie director, whose hits have somewhat dried up, has been given the keys to this gigantic film franchise, which initially might seem like a bit of a strange move, but there is some personal connection here, because Jason Reitman is the son of Ivan Reitman, the original director of Ghostbusters. So he's keeping it in the family and has taken over his father's project and created a film which is lovingly and directly connected to the original two movies. In this film, a single mother, Carrie Coon, with her teenage children, Finn Wolfhard and McKenna Grace, are basically flat broke. They have no money, they're being evicted from their New York apartment, which means it is incredibly lucky that Carrie Coon's long-estranged father has just died in rural Oklahoma, and Carrie Coon has inherited this ramshackle old house. So they move to rural Oklahoma trying to make the best of this terrible situation. It's the middle of nowhere. There's nothing to do, nothing approaching a real life capable in this small town. But there are mysterious rumblings, literally mysterious rumblings, which seem to be emanating from the old mine, which is on the outskirts of town. And these rumblings are strange enough that... A seismologist, played by Paul Rudd, has essentially snuck into this town and is masquerading as the summer school teacher at the local high school. 
where he is teaching McKenna Grace and meeting and casually flirting with Carrie Coon. So as McKenna Grace and Finn Wolfhard try to make the best of their terrible situation and Finn Wolfhard tries to hook up with the attractive local girl Celeste O'Connor, what is going on in the mine? And could there actually be something supernatural going on? And could it be connected with the long-forgotten Ghostbusters who did that thing with the spirits in the 80s? So, in a lot of ways, I think Ghostbusters Afterlife is a loving tribute and a reframing of the Ghostbusters mythology, but it makes a couple of rather strange decisions. The opening scene of this film is a car bursting out of this old abandoned mine on the edge of town in the middle of these cornfields in Oklahoma, even though it was actually shot in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. But there's a car bursting out of this old abandoned mine with you know, CGI spirits chasing it. And, oh, look, there's an actual ghost trap from the first Ghostbusters movie. And he goes to this ramshackle old house and tries to prevent the ghost approaching, but, of course, the electricity generator fails at the absolute worst time, and whoever this person is, they end up dead. And the filmmaking is very, very careful to make sure you don't know who this person is. I mean, you can make a guess, but you don't know for sure who this person is. And the film is very, very careful never to reveal this person's identity. I mean, even when the estranged daughter, Carrie Coon, comes to town, we never hear their last name. Whenever the dead person is referred to, they are always referred to dismissively as the dirt farmer. I mean, he was doing all this work on this piece of land, but never actually growing anything. He didn't engage with the local community. He was the local weirdo. He was the dirt farmer, and that's all he's ever referred to as. And the longer this goes on, the more it is clear that a deliberate effort has been made to hide the identity of who this dead man is. And you reach a point where, thinking logically about it, there is only one person who this could be, and yet we are still hiding the identity of the dead man. So when McKenna Grace makes the call and says, you know, my grandfather was X, we've already reached that point. We know who the grandfather is. So treating it as this giant revelation is trying to be too clever for its own good. It's trying to make the effort to make this a mystery, make this a reveal, when it was basically unnecessary. If you know anything about the background of the Ghostbusters and the actual actors who appeared in the original Ghostbusters, there is only one logical explanation as to who the dead person is. So hiding it for so long, particularly when the character traits of McKenna Grace are so closely related to one of the original Ghostbusters, and I'll be getting back to McKenna Grace in a bit, but when that connection is so clearly there, 
hiding it for no good reason actually started to piss me off after a while. Which I didn't really want to feel because in a lot of ways, I think this is a really careful, a really conscious tribute to the original film and an interesting enough story in its own right. I think it helps a lot if you are familiar with the original Ghostbusters, but I don't necessarily believe you need to be familiar with the original Ghostbusters, which is, after all, close to 40 years old now. It would be interesting to see the reaction of somebody who's never seen or appreciated the original Ghostbusters, but for somebody like me who did grow up with it, there's enough references, there's enough callbacks to it that it does absolutely work. The surviving members of the original major cast all return. Rick Moranis doesn't, but he has essentially retired, and he retired a long time ago. I mean, it's actually a rather sad story. Rick Moranis' wife died, so he retired to look after their kids, and occasionally he makes vocal work appearances and animations. But other than that, he's been retired for 20-odd years, so... Yeah, Rick Moranis doesn't show up, and, and Harold Ramis has unfortunately died, but he is literally in this film in spirit. I mean, I, I'm somewhat ambivalent about using CGI recreations of dead actors, but in this case, where Harold Ramis is literally a spirit, and crucially, I think, and importantly, doesn't talk, and I mean, it it's, has this ethereal quality that he is there, we can see him, but he's not talking. I think that's a respectful way of doing it. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that Harold Ramis would have been okay with the way he is treated. And, you know, the final thing we see on screen is for Harold. I mean, as well as acting in it, he also co-wrote the original Ghostbusters. And let's not forget, he directed Groundhog Day, and that will always be one of the great comedies out there so yeah i think it's a nice loving tribute to harold ramis and there's enough connections to the original story the original 1984 film and enough ways to continuing the story that actually makes sense that i can't be too obsessed about it even though it is very very much a nostalgia kick I mean, there is an equivalent of Slimer from the 1984 film. There's something called a muncher, which is a ghost, a spirit, which eats metal, which is a really interesting thing. And then it sort of like spits out bits of metal like bullets, which is actually kind of cool. And it looks a little bit like a tardigrade. I mean, those microscopically small creatures you find in pond water, it looks very much like a... a tardigrade to me i think that was probably deliberate and it's you know for want of a better word it's cute and i think it, it does work so yeah i mean there's lots of stuff here which connects it to the 1984 film and is a tribute to the 1984 film but somewhat stands on its own there are deliberate callbacks to the 1980s I mean, Paul Rudd has come to this small Oklahoma town to investigate these rumblings on the ground because he is a seismologist. And he is masquerading or, or has found a job as the summer school teacher, which he doesn't give a shit about. 
So he gets out an old VHS player and plays the any VHS tape he can find to this classroom of kids who failed the previous year. So for summer school, these kids who are in the age range of probably 11 to 14 probably are watching Cujo and Child's Play on an old VHS tape recorder. I mean, that really harks back to the 80s in many different ways. And I think that is deliberate. But there are certain aspects of this film which I think are very modern, or or their approach to certain aspects of these characters is, I think, very modern. And this brings me on to McKenna Grace, who I think is a great young actress. I first remember seeing her in a low-budget Indian-American film called Gifted, where she was a genius child to single father Chris Evans, and Chris Evans wanting her to be a child, but her being pushed to go into the advanced classes. And McKenna Grace was brilliant in that film as a young girl. And she's matured into a great teenage actress. But the way she is portraying her character, I think is a very, very modern, a very 21st century approach to the character. Because without actually saying it, McKenna Grace is playing this character definitely as if she is somewhere on the autistic spectrum. They go as far as they can showing that this is a girl on the spectrum without actually outright saying it. Well, there is one line of dialogue where McKenna Grace says, I don't show emotions like other people. And there's another point where the one geeky friend she makes in this summer school class is a little Asian boy who calls himself Podcast and is always recording stuff. And as a podcaster myself, I somewhat resent that characterization. But anyway, this little kid, Logan Kim, at one point hugs McKenna Grace in celebration and instantly realizes, oh, I, I shouldn't have done that. She, she doesn't like that. So they go as far as they can along the path of saying this is a savant autistic girl. I mean, she's very into engineering. She instantly recognizes all the components of a proton pack when you know, she uncovers her grandfather's secret basement. The very first time you see her, she's messing about with the electricity in her dingy New York apartment with her single mother and older brother. She's an engineering genius and has a strange attitude, doesn't like to be touched. I mean, she's on the spectrum and she's playing it as if she's on the spectrum. And as somebody who isn't, I think that is a reasonably responsible, reasonably respectful portrayal of a girl who is on the spectrum. I mean, she has a different attitude to the world. She has a different approach to the world. And that's okay. Everybody understands her. Everybody accepts her. Well, mostly. I mean, her mother, Carrie Coon, tries her best, but she is really not prepared to have a daughter who is so technically gifted and doesn't 
you know, want to do girly things that her mother wants to do. But she is trying her best and at least understands where her daughter is coming from, even if she doesn't always appreciate it. But yeah, I think it is a responsible and a reasonable portrayal of somebody on the spectrum. And yeah, I think that is a very 21st century attitude. I also think there's a somewhat 21st century attitude to the romance aspects of this film. There is no time wasted on will they, won't they, flirting or whatever. One scene, Carrie Coon is dropping off McKenna Grace to summer school and meeting the goofy teacher Paul Rudd. The next scene, he's coming around the house and asking for a date. I mean, it doesn't waste any time whatsoever in will they, won't they, is there a connection here? No, it's like, oh, you're age-appropriate and kind of attractive. Do you fancy going on a date? And that's it. And I kind of appreciated that because there's so much else going on in this film. I mean, there's kind of a, a summer it's all changed vibe almost with all the kids in this small town, you know, the incomers, Finn Wolfhard, who frankly has bugger all to do in this film. He is absolutely nothing in this role for Finn Wolfhard, apart from making eyes at the attractive girl, Celeste O'Connor. But I mean, these kids trying to get something together, trying to make something work, trying to be understood and believed that there is something wrong in this small Oklahoma town. There's enough there, and there's some good action sequences. I mean, there's a chase through the streets of this small Oklahoma town chasing this tardigrade-looking muncher, which is really cool. There's some good stuff in the mine shaft, which they eventually get to. There's distinct callbacks to you know, Gozer and the gatekeeper and the keymaster and being turned into those giant dog-looking things from the first movie. There's appearances from lots of tiny Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, which is pretty cool. And some very, very creepy stuff where these marshmallow men, these little CGI marshmallow men, are roasting themselves and turning themselves into s'mores, which, when you think about it, is really, really creepy. And there's also a mildly subversive take. I mean, if you wanted to look at it weirdly, I mean, one of the characters eventually gets absolutely covered in marshmallow goo which could be taken in the wrong way, I think. But, yeah, I think Ghostbusters Afterlife is as good as you could have expected. I mean, yes, it is somewhat dependent on the first film, it is somewhat dependent on nostalgia, but Percy speaking, as far as I can tell, as somebody who is familiar with the original film, it does do enough to stand on its own, it does do enough to be entertaining on its own, and I did enjoy myself. So for me, Ghostbusters Afterlife is a solid, entertaining, blockbuster meh. The next cinematic film I watched this week was King Richard, the biopic of Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena. Directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green, who has done a couple of films in the past, one of which hasn't 
actually been released in the UK yet. And his first film was Man of Monsters, which I honestly wasn't the biggest fan of. But he has a respectable background in Hollywood. And now he has made this somewhat Oscar Beatty film with Will Smith amongst the favourites to be a best actor at the Oscars this year. And also Ingenue Ellis as his wife, is apparently one of the frontrunners for Best Supporting Actress, which, honestly, I don't necessarily agree with. But anyway, I was somewhat ambivalent about King Richard because I do not believe that the intensive parenting and the hot housing that Richard Williams indulged in, in moulding his children from birth, to be superstar tennis players. I don't think that is something to be applauded or encouraged. And I was kind of worried that that's what this film would be. So I was somewhat ambivalent about this film going in, but since it is a seemingly illegitimate Oscar contender, I did go along and see it. And it does show the parenting of Will Smith as he moulds Venus, played by Sonia Sidney, and Serena, played by Demi Singleton, into superstar tennis players, with his wife, Ingenue Ellis, looking on somewhat exasperatedly from the sidelines, and eventually they move their family all the way across the country, from California to Florida, where the Williams sisters are coached by John Bernthal. And the film culminates with Venus Williams' first professional match or first professional tournament at the age of 14. And the rest, as they say, is history. And as I said, I was ambivalent about this. And one of the first things that I think needs to be said about King Richard is that Venus and Serena Williams, as well as one of their other sisters, Isha, act as executive producers on this film. So this is, to some degree, the Williamses telling their own story, and I think that needs to be put out there for informational purposes. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Straight Outta Compton, the biopic of NWA, which was produced, or executive produced, by the surviving members of NWA, and Ice Cube's son playing Ice Cube. Don't get me wrong, O'Shea Jackson Jr. is, it turns out, a really good actor. I've seen him in other stuff since, and he's very good. But he was playing his own father. So how easy was it for him to get that gig? So it's a sanitised, it's a safe, it's an image-conscious version of the story in both Straight Outta Compton and King Richard. And while this film does talk about the hot housing, it does talk about the rigid plan that Richard Williams had before his daughters were even born, He had a plan. He had their whole life laid out for them before they were even born. And he is constantly referring to this is the plan. And all the family members have to follow the plan. 
And that is brought up, and there are other characters who repeatedly call him out about this. I mean, in occasionally, even his wife calls him out about the plan. But it's not really addressed all that much. And in my opinion, I think it shows a high level of hypocrisy. Because Richard Williams makes very public, very big statements about being humble. I mean, there's one scene where he sits his entire family down and repeatedly shows them the Disney version of Cinderella, the animated version of Cinderella, in order to teach his children to be humble. And he also makes very public, very loud statements decrying tennis parents, saying that the people who push their kids into tennis are bad parents and are putting too much pressure on their children. And isn't that exactly what Richard Williams is doing? He is moulding his children from birth, from before birth, to be tennis stars, taking them to the local tennis courts in Compton, where it's much more likely to be drug deals going on than tennis matches, having to deal directly with the gangbangers whose territory this is in. And there's certain very, very uncomfortable interactions between the Williams family and these gangbangers at these tennis courts. But he is constantly taking his children to the tennis courts. Do your homework and then we're going for training for two or three hours at a time. This is exactly what he's doing. And this is the thing which he is at the same time decrying. And are we going to address that? Not really. And. I think this is a sanitised version from within the madness that was Richard Williams and his family, and I don't think that always works. When you have a character who is so concerned with publicity, is so concerned with fame, ostentatiously makes his 14-year-old daughter the biggest star that there is, by constantly talking about, so constantly going on television, isn't that hot housing? And we're not really going to address this. I mean, I think he is called out for his towering, his massive ego time and time again. He is called out for the rigid way he wants his life to go, his family's life to go. There is some level of accusation here, but he is never fully brought to account for his attitude, for the way he treated his family, raised his daughter. And there's also elements here about the casual systemic racism inherent in the world of tennis. Several characters you know, instantly dismiss these little black girls out of the country club elites in which they are moving when he has his initial meeting with the Nike company, when it becomes clear that the only reason that Nike is interested in you know, the then 12-year-old Venus Williams is because she's black, Richard Williams starts making all these statements about Rodney King and about the exoticism which Nike is after. He is being incredibly stubborn. He is making decisions on his own without consulting either his daughters or his wife. I mean, it's supposed to be, you know, we are a team, we are a family, but he's making decisions on his own based on his own 
towering, massive ego. And we have to accept this because this is a story told by his own daughters. And the one scene that really, really bothers me in this film is a scene where after a particularly bad interaction, a bad encounter with these gangbangers who are hanging out around these tennis courts, Richard Williams takes a gun from work. I mean, he works overnight as a security guard, so he has access to a gun. So he takes a gun from work and contemplates confronting these gangbangers in a violent, possibly murderous way. It doesn't happen, and it is never addressed again. How are we supposed to feel about this supposedly inspirational, supposedly empowering man, who when push came to shove, was sorely, sorely tempted and came within a whisker of using a gun to solve his problems. How are we supposed to feel about that? How are we supposed to deal with that when the film doesn't deal with it at all? We only have that one scene, that one moment, where he is brandishing the gun and contemplating using it, and then it is never addressed again, it is never brought up again. How are we supposed to feel about this? I maintain my position that I do not think that Richard Williams is somebody to be praised or applauded. I don't feel he is an inspirational figure. I feel he is an immensely problematic figure. And I'm not exactly sure this film should be praised. In terms of acting, yes, Will Smith is excellent. Portraying this character, who we are somewhat familiar with, with his very odd syntax, I mean, his poorly educated Louisiana background, but also his determination that his children will succeed. I mean, his biological children, Venus and Serena, his three other stepdaughters have absolutely nothing as far as he's concerned, and that too is not addressed. But Will Smith's performance as this very complicated, very egotistical character, I do think is excellent. And it's one of those situations where Will Smith is probably due. He is one of the great actors of this generation, but he's never won an Oscar. And if you want to give him an Oscar for this, then I think that's reasonably good. I mean, fair enough. I haven't seen everything he'll be competing against, but I wouldn't, I think, be too upset if Will Smith did win an Oscar for this. I mean, Anjanou Ellis is a great actress. I've seen her in many things over the years. I personally most remember her from the TV show The Mentalist, but she's been in loads of other stuff over the years, including things like The Help. She's a great actress too. I don't think I would be too happy with her getting a Best Supporting Actress nomination. I just don't think she's in the film enough. I mean, yes, she does have a pretty good scene towards the end of the film where she calls out all of Will Smith's bullshit about what he's been doing. But that's one relatively small scene in a somewhat insignificant role. So 
Not sure about Ingenue Ellis, but if you wanted to give Will Smith an Oscar, I guess fair play. But as a film, I remain pretty much ambivalent about it, particularly when it is the Williams sisters telling their own father's story to some degree. And this sanitised version of Richard Williams, I don't think was particularly the right way to go. So, as a film, I don't think it works. As a central performance, I think it is very, very good for Will Smith. But overall, for me, King Richard, available cinematically, is a middle-of-the-road meh. The last cinematic film I watched this week was the three-hour Japanese film, which has been submitted to the Oscars this year, Drive My Car. It is directed by Ryusuke Hamaguchi, whose most notable film before this was the five-hour epic Happy Hour. So, yeah, this is a determinedly non-commercial director, despite the fact this has got some praise around the world. It has done the festival circuit. It premiered at Cannes and also played at Toronto, Kalogivari, San Sebastian, Busan and London, some of the more prestigious festivals around the world. Possibly this has something to do with the fact it is based on a short story by the legendary Japanese author Haruki Marukami, and apparently also has elements from other of Marukami's short stories. And it tells the story of a famous theatre director played by Hidetoshi Nishijima, who is married to a television screenwriter Raiko Kirishima. On the surface, they have a seemingly happy marriage. They are both in creative fields. They are both intimate with each other. But one day, Hidetoshi Nishijima comes home a little bit early and realises that his wife is sleeping with other men. From the angle he can see them at, he is not 100% sure who this man is, but he's pretty sure it's the actor in his wife's latest TV show, Masaki Okada. Hidetoshi Nishijima spends some time trying to process this information, trying to deal with his wife's infidelity, but before he has time to fully process this, his wife, Raika Kirishima dies of a brain hemorrhage. So a lot of stuff is left unresolved. Two years later, Hidetoshi Nishijima is invited to the Hiroshima Theatre Festival to reproduce his version of Uncle Vanya which was the play he was performing when his wife died two years ago. The Hiroshima Theatre Festival wants to do this again in the unique way that Hidetoshi Nishijima does it. He has all the actors act in their native languages, which is not always Japanese, and then have projections of the translation of what is going on on screen 
on the background of the theatre. One of the first things we see is Waiting for Godot with Hitadoshi Nishijima performing in Japanese, and I think the other personal stages speaking Korean. The first version of Uncle Vanya we see as his wife is dying. One of the other actors is speaking in Italian, and there's, I think, Hindi in there. And eventually, at this Hiroshima Theatre Festival, he has actors speaking in Japanese, in Mandarin, in Korean, in, I think, Filipino, and in Korean Sign Language. So this is like a universal thing that Hitadoshi Nishijima is famous for, and the Hiroshima Theatre Festival wants him to recreate his Uncle Vanya for their festival. He agrees to this. But one of the conditions for accepting this job at the Hiroshima Theatre Festival is that he must have a chauffeur. He must be driven to and from his hotel room, which he asked for a hotel about an hour away because he likes to listen to his lines on the tape recorder in his vintage Saab car. But now it's the awkward situation where he's playing these tapes and learning his lines with a chauffeur the young, attractive woman, Toko Miura, who has a very working-class, very detached attitude to this whole thing. She doesn't really understand or connect to the theatre world, which she is a driver for. But the longer these two people spend together, the longer they are driving together, the more a casual, gradual bond grows between these two people and that each of them dealing with their personal tragedies of their past in their own way as they are driving in these cars. And as well as the tragedies of the past, the awkwardness of the present situation also comes up in these long car journeys because one of the actors who has been cast in this new version of Uncle Vanya is Masaki Okada, the man who was almost certainly having an affair with Hidetoshi Nishijima's wife two years ago. So that gets a little awkward as well. So these two lost souls driving in the car together to and from this performance of Uncle Vanya forms the basis of this film. And in many ways, I think Drive My Car is kind of impressive. Yes, it is three hours long. The opening credits come up after 55 minutes, after the first act of the film, the bit where the marriage between Hidetoshi Nishijima and Raika Kirishima is brought into focus and Raika Kirishima dies. That's basically the prologue of the film. It takes 55 minutes and then we have the opening credits. But personally speaking, I don't think I really felt the length because there is so much to explore here in very abstract ways. Almost without the people on screen realising it, and certainly without the audience realising it, or certainly I didn't realise it, these two people, this 23-year-old driver who doesn't give a shit about the theatre and this highly respected and grieving theatre director, spending all this time together, a bond forms between them. And later in the film you realise exactly what kind of bond it is, and it's not what you expect. But 
I think this is a portrayal of a relationship that neither of these people knew they needed, but they definitely needed this relationship. They definitely needed a connection of some kind with another person, with somebody to share their burdens with. And each of them have their own burdens, have their own issues. And these long, largely silent car journeys are the forum for emotions to come out, to deal with the issues and the traumas of your past. I think this is a, a, an interesting emotional journey. I think this has some of the moral quandaries of Asghar Fahadi and some of the emotional quandaries of Hirokatsu Koraeda. This is an intimate family drama on an epic scale, in an epic length. And speaking of Fahadi, I think there is another parallel with Asuka Fahadi's film, The Salesman, in so much as when Hidetoshi Nishijima is performing and rehearsing Uncle Vanya, the parallels in that story of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya there are elements in common with what the other characters, what the actors are dealing with. And as these lines are being played in the car, they make comment upon the actual action in real life. And the parallels between Uncle Vanya and what is actually happening in Hitotoshi Nishijima and Tokomiura's life is striking and very, very well done. I mean, I think that is what Asghar Fahadi was trying to do in his film The Salesman, in paralleling the real life of Shahab Hosseini and his wife and Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. And honestly, I don't think the parallels were especially strong in that film, even though the film itself is excellent. I don't think the central core works. But here, the parallels between Uncle Vanya and what is going on in real life is really, really strong. And it's all done, or largely done, in these car journeys. I mean, initially it's just silent as they are listening to the tapes. I mean, what happened is Raiko Kirishima, his wife, recorded all the other pieces of dialogue for Uncle Vanya. So as Hidetoshi Nishijima was driving, he could reply with Uncle Vanya's lines. And that is how he learnt his lines, how he became intimately familiar with the, with the lines. Now, two years after his wife's death, you get the impression that he's doing it more just to listen to his wife's voice, a wife who he had a very, very complex relationship with, a relationship in which he knew that she was cheating on him, and he never confronted her about this. And the very last thing that Raiko Kirishima said to her husband as he left the door is, when you come back, we need to talk. And that's the last thing she said. So there's a lot of unresolved stuff. I mean, what was she going to say? Was she going to confess? Did she even want to split up? Was this the end of the marriage? He will never, ever know. He never can know. And that, to some degree, is killing him. So now he's just listening to his wife's voice on these tapes in this vintage Saab car. And initially that's all that's going on, but gradually the tapes get turned off and they actually have conversations. This 23-year-old woman, Toko Miura, and this 
respected theatre director Hidetoshi Nishijima, and they have an unexpected bond and unexpected connection. And these car journeys start meaning more and more. But there's one scene, which I think is the pivotal scene in the film, is when Hitotoshi Nishijima offers a lift to this young actor, Masaki Okada, who was almost certainly having an affair with his dead wife. And they are sitting in the back of this car and having a conversation. They both knew Raiko Kirishima. They were almost certainly both sleeping with Raiko Kirishima. Arguably, both of them loved Raiko Kirishima, but they haven't actually ever talked about it. And then they have a conversation where they never, ever outright say, yes, I was sleeping with your dead wife. That is clearly the subtext of this whole thing. Talking about relationships, talking about the specific relationship that Hidetoshi Nishijima had with his dead wife and the odd things that were connected them in their marriage. I mean, Raiko Kirishima in this film is introduced in such an interesting way. I mean, they are naked in bed together, and we only see her in silhouette, and she's telling a story. I mean, she's a screenwriter, and she's telling a story to her husband in bed, clearly after they've been intimate with each other, but she's shown in silhouette, and it's a beautiful thing. And Hitotoshi Nishijima is recounting this kind of encounter to the young man who cuckolded him, Masaki Okada. And he responds in such a way to make it clear, yeah, I probably was sleeping with your wife, but I'm not going to outright say it. And these two men dealing with their grief, dealing arguably with the loss of the love of their life, but how much of that is there? I mean, and what... What was Raiko Kirishima going to say before she had the brain hemorrhage and died? We need to talk when you get back. I mean, that is such a terrible last thing to say to your spouse. But it's a long conversation between these two men in the back of this vintage Saab. And it's really, really powerful. It's really intimate stuff. It, it explores a relationship in a rather abstract and a rather oblique way, but say perfectly encapsulated rather intense way as well this is very much about the emotional truth and the emotional honesty dealing with past traumas dealing with current issues and finding connections that you never realized you had but turn out are absolutely vital if you'd said to this 23 year old driver toko miura you need somebody to talk to, she would probably rejected you outright. But this 47-year-old theatre director was exactly the right person at exactly the right time. And they needed each other. And they needed to exorcise the demons. I mean, Hidetoshi Nishijima needed to perform Uncle Vanya again after two years. The play he was performing as his wife died, the play that had so many parallels to the troubles he had at home. He needs to do it again. He needs to close that loop. And it turns out that the final speech of Uncle Vanya, given by a character called Sonia, which is saying, I am going to embrace tragedy. I am going to try and find happiness. Uh, I'm trying to be okay with the fact that my life is terrible. This is how I will go on. This is how I will survive. 
it turns out that that speech about fatalism and endurance is absolutely beautiful and absolutely poetic when it is done in sign language. The staging of that, the way that the sign language comes to the audience from this actress Park Yu Rim, I do not know if she's actually deaf, but I assume she is. But her Korean sign language performing this speech is so beautiful and so meaningful. And yeah, it, it is. It's impressive that yeah, Uncle Vanya really does have strong parallels with the life of this theatre director. I'm not sure if that was in the original Murakami short story, but whether or not it was, the fact that Ryusuke Hamaguchi chose Uncle Vanya for this film, I think is very, very telling and very appropriate. And I think it ends up being a small, intimate film on an epic scale, which is somewhat of a contradiction in terms, but that's the way it is. I mean, it's an intimate film that's three hours long. And it works. I was very impressed with it. I was duly impressed with it. It has been submitted by Japan to this year's International Film Oscar race. I would not be at all surprised if it ends up on the 15 film long list. And I would not be at all surprised if it ends up with a nomination. I think of the eligible films I've seen so far, the ones I like the best are Drive My Car from Japan and Clara Sola from Costa Rica. That hasn't got a prayer of getting nominated but yeah i did like this film if you're willing to put yourself through an emotional drama from japan with multiple foreign languages spoken in it then i think drive my car is as good as you're gonna get so for me drive my car available in a limited capacity in cinemas is a very very high meh Home movies. Ride the Eagle is an American indie comedy directed by the Australian Trent O'Donnell, who has a long background directing comedy television both in Australia and the US. He created the very successful Australian comedy show No Activity, which he subsequently went on to remake in the US. And he's also directed 28 episodes of New Girl, which is probably where he connected with this film's star and co-writer, Jake Johnson. He's also directed three episodes of The Good Place, which is probably where he connected with one of this film's other co-stars, Darcy Carden. And speaking of remaking shows in America. The forthcoming project for Trent O'Donnell is the US remake of the BBC sitcom Ghosts, which I'm weirdly fascinated by because I think Ghosts is awesome. The Horrible Histories crew know how to write together and act together, so they always manage to do something special. And I'm very curious to see how it gets transformed when it moves to the US. So, yeah, when that comes out here in the UK, I will be checking that out. But anyway, this film 
Ride the Eagle is directed by Trent O'Donnell, co-written by Trent O'Donnell and Jake Johnson, and stars Jake Johnson as a 30-something man drifting through life. As the film opens, he is living in a treehouse and smoking a joint. And I can't help feeling that that's probably actually how Jake Johnson spends his time. But he is called down from his treehouse by an old woman who says, Your long estranged mother, Susan Sarandon, has just died. And she has left you her cabin in the Yosemite National Park if you complete the tasks which she has left for you. This is a completely legal contract, a conditional will. If you do the tasks which your estranged mother Susan Sarandon has prepared for you, you will inherit this cabin. So with very little else to do, Jake Johnson goes with his black Labrador to this cabin in Yosemite and starts ticking off the tasks which his dead mother Susan Sarandon has left for him and the instructions which Susan Sarandon videotaped for him before she died of cancer. So interacting with his dead mother on a VHS tape his black Labrador who can't talk back and the seemingly crazy old man who lives across the lake played by J.K. Simmons, Jake Johnson starts ticking off these tasks, one of which is phone up the one who got away and say sorry. And after a bit of internal debate, he decides that a girlfriend he had about a decade ago, Darcy Carden, is the one who got away. So throughout the course of the film, he starts talking with Darcy Carden on the phone and interacting with her. And that, and the interactions with J.K. Simmons and the dog and the dead mother on the VHS tapes, starts having a calming and a peaceful effect on this drifting 30-something man-child. But will he complete the tasks and inherit this beautiful cabin? This is one of those films which has very few surprises, very few original moments, but on its own terms, I think it absolutely succeeds. It's a relatively slight concept it's a relatively slight movie but i think it genuinely works i've always been impressed with jake johnson i mean i watched new girl for a long time before eventually giving up and i do like his goofy stoner kind of attitude i've seen him in other things since and always been impressed Things like Safety Not Guaranteed, the TV show Stumptown, and the very underrated Joe Swanberg movie Drinking Buddies, I think is also really good. And having a charming, engaging presence like Jake Johnson at the centre of this, who for large stretches has no one else to talk to but the dog, 
I mean, I think this dog acts as something of a Wilson from Castaway, you know, the thing that you can talk to and it doesn't matter that it doesn't talk back. And you also have quasi-interactions with the dead mother on these VHS tapes. And I do like the way that that convention is mildly subverting, you know, talking to somebody who's pre-recorded their side of the conversation and Susan Sarandon anticipating what her long-estranged son, who she hasn't properly seen since he was about 12, what his responses will be, and not always getting them right. I mean, I like the way that those conventions are mildly subverted. But I also like the way that Jake Johnson interacts with Darcy Carden. You know, ringing up this woman out of the blue after about a decade, and they instantly have this chemistry together, this goofy, playful attitude. You get the impression that this was how their relationship was a decade ago, and ringing up out of the blue, and suddenly it's back together. And you feel the chemistry, despite the fact that I am absolutely sure that Jake Johnson and Darcy Carden didn't actually meet during the course of this film. I'm not sure if this was a budgetary thing or a COVID thing, but basically nobody is in the same room at the same time during the course of this film. Jake Johnson always interacts with Darcy Carden over the phone when she's in her own home. He interacts with Susan Sarandon over the distance of time when she's recorded these VHS tapes. The only time when two of the characters are in the same room at the same time is a couple of brief scenes between Jake Johnson and J.K. Simmons. Other than that, everybody's acting alone. And yet, there is still a genuine chemistry between Darcy Carden and Jake Johnson even over these phone calls. And, you know, the goofy, playful attitudes, the sometimes awkward attitudes that you have. You know, I haven't spoken to you for 10 years and suddenly we're, oh, we're, we're goofy together, we're playful together, maybe we're even flirting together. I'm the one who got away, really? You know, that kind of thing. And it works, it's playful, it's engaging. and. Jake Johnson gradually engaging just enough with his mother's plan for him. I mean, the idea is that since I haven't really seen you since you were 12, I never taught you anything. So now I'm going to make you learn things from me after I'm dead through these VHS tapes, through this conditional will. And Jake Johnson initially just doesn't care. He's going through the motions. He's going to do it anyway. I mean, it doesn't seem that anybody's actually checking if he's going to do this list, but he's doing it anyway, going through the motions, engaging just enough with his mother's plan for him, and gradually getting a little bit more into it and having a little bit more understanding and a little bit more peace of his very hippie, very flighty mother who did try to connect with him, who did 
try several times to contact him over the years, but he steadfastly refused to engage with her. And now it's too late. So he, he has conflicted feelings about that. He has conflicted feelings about what his mother was doing, you know, abandoning him when he was 12, essentially. He has conflicted feelings about this cabin, which is beautiful in you know the Yosemite area. I don't know if it's actually in the National Park, but it's in the Yosemite area. But it is sort of like several hours from where he lived before. I mean, but he was living in a treehouse. And when it is revealed what he was actually doing with his time, is that actually worth going back to? So is he maybe going to stay in this cabin in Yosemite? You know, he says at one point, somewhat ironically, but equally somewhat not, I am a mountain man now. And yeah, it's it's a small, it's a slight, but in its own way, I think it is rather impressive. And on the terms of being a small, slight, charming little film, I do think it absolutely works. It's not aiming particularly high, but it absolutely hits the targets it's going for. And I did really enjoy Ride the Eagle. So, on its own terms, as a small, slight, charming film, I do actually recommend Ride the Eagle, available through streaming platforms. And for me, it is a yay. The reason I actually got myself a rental of Ride the Eagle, I mean, it was on my list, but it wasn't my highest priority. But I did notice one day that it was on sale for a very low rental cost on iTunes. So I thought, okay, I may as well get it. And while I'm here, I will get myself the two foreign language films, which seemingly are only available streaming through the iTunes store and not the Google Play Store or Sky Cinema or whatever. So while I was there, I also got myself some rentals of these foreign language films the first of which is the slovak film servants directed by ivan ostrakovsky it is set in bratislava in 1980 where two young men samuel skiva and samuel polakovich are entering a Catholic seminary training to be priests. But almost as soon as they get there, they realise that this is communist Czechoslovakia of 1980. It is a totalitarian state. And after some recent anti-communist scandals have happened in this Bratislava seminary, the secret police are breathing down these Catholic priests' necks. In the figure of the local secret police chief, or at least the secret police chief who's in charge of the church, the excellent Romanian actor Vlad Ivanov. So with Vlad Ivanov lurking in the background, it becomes increasingly obvious to these young, 
potential priests, Samuel Skiva and Samuel Polakovich, that in order to get along in totalitarian Czechoslovakia of 1980, they are going to have to collaborate with the communist system and become political figures just as much as they will become spiritual figures in their diocese should they progress all the way to becoming priests. So the question becomes, what is the right thing to do? Do you take a stand for the sake of your faith and for the Catholic Church at large, or do you collaborate with the authoritarian regime simply to get by, simply to survive in this totalitarian state? Every person must make that decision for themselves. This is a really interesting film. It's one of those films that is only 80 minutes long, and I actually wanted it to be a little bit longer. There is no fat on this film at all. There are things which happen, I mean, we can see they're happening, we know the general gist of where things are going, but they happen almost immediately. There are always things going on, and the paths that these two young men must take are laid out for them very, very quickly. This film is shot in beautiful black and white in stark 4x3 Academy ratio, a pattern which will be continued later on in this particular podcast. But it's beautifully stylized. There's some strange and stark images which are used here like a group of these potential priests circling around a ping-pong table and playing back and forth and then just moving around and rotating and playing back and forth. It's really odd. I mean, there's a scene of them learning to dance with each other. There's a repeated use of an overhead shot of a particular courtyard. And throughout the course of the film, this camera rotates because we can see where the door is. And at various points, there's people having furtive conversations with each other that we can see from above. Sometimes they're just hanging laundry. Sometimes they're playing football with each other. These two young priests who we are mostly following, Samuel Skiva and Samuel Polakovich, they are learning the accordion together, which is a very strange and unusual thing. And there are very strange and unusual approaches that this film takes. It's very much about imagery. It's got a very structured, very compositional, very mannered approach to direction, which absolutely works. I mean, it has these stark, impressive images. I mean, the film opens in a really telling way. We are following a car on a cold Bratislava morning. And we're just following this car, wondering what's going on. And then eventually the people get out and take somebody out of the boot and dump them by the side of the road. And they ask somebody, oh, can you check for a pulse or whatever? And that turns out to be Vlad Ivanov. And then Vlad Ivanov goes home, cleans off his shoes, and then goes into the communist system. So we know right from the start that eventually somebody's going to end up in the boot of the secret policeman's car. 
And that's just the way things are in communist Czechoslovakia. And it's really, really well done. It has these moments of totalitarianism. I mean, there's sort of like an underground of, you know, quote-unquote true Catholicism. You know, if we are following the Bible, if we are following God's word, we should not be collaborating with the communists. And yet, there is an official state-sponsored Catholic organization called Passem in Terrace, which ironically takes its name from a papal missive which was anti-Cold War from the 1960s, but this group, Pashem in Terrace, Peace on Earth, is actually just a branch of the Communist Party, a branch of the Communist system using the trappings of the Catholic faith and the Catholic Church. And these seminary students are expected to collaborate with this state-sponsored communist organisation should they proceed with their training as priests. And each individual has to make that choice. And these two young men who come into this seminary are pulled in different ways. I mean, one of them quickly meets a leader in this underground movement and starts spending time with him, which creates a certain level of jealousy. You know, my best friend who I came all the way to Bratislava with to be a priest with, he's gone off with a new friend, and how do I feel about that? I mean, it's not just, you know, living a Catholic life in a totalitarian state. It is my best friend is spending time with somebody else. and. It might be one of those things that I'm reading a little bit too much into it, but there's possibly slightly homoerotic overtones to this thing as well. But it's natural human emotion, human interaction. It would be natural to be somewhat jealous of this situation. But when you are in this cauldron of moral and ethical quandaries. What is the purpose of my faith? What is the purpose of living in a communist totalitarian state? It adds extra layers to it. We have the dean of this seminary, played by Vladimir Sternisko, who is desperate to keep this seminary open at any cost. I will fully collaborate with this secret policeman, Vlad Ivanov. I will give up the people who I suspect are working against the communist system, because if I do, this seminary will stay open and we will have Catholic priests. But at what cost? What is the point of churning out priests who are nothing more than puppets of the communist system? Is it worth keeping the ceremony open if that's what the result is going to be? Collaborating for the perceived greater good is one thing, but what does that greater good actually mean? What does it achieve? And everybody has to make that decision for themselves. And it's really, really complex. And the directions this film eventually goes in with emotional safety 
spiritual safety and physical safety all being brought into question, what is the best thing to do? How can you navigate through this moral maze which you are living through? It's very, very hard. And sometimes it's too hard. And yeah, it's it's really, really thought-provoking, really impressive stuff. And shot in such a stylized way. And as I said, there's no fat on this whatsoever. I mean, one scene, Samuel Skeever is spending a little bit of time with this radical Thomas Turek. The next scene, he's writing his newsletters with him. So it's going very, very quickly through all the stages we need to. And constantly having Vlad Ivanov in the background. Now, I was very intrigued to see Vlad Ivanov when I saw the trailer for this film because it's getting to the stage where I'm starting to recognise more and more international actors. And I have seen Vlad Ivanov in so many Romanian films that I instantly recognised him. He's been in four months, three weeks, two days, Tony Erdman, Child's Pose, Graduation, The Whistlers. I've seen him in so many Romanian films. But he is a Romanian actor of Russian heritage. So one thing that I'm missing in this film, because I'm not from the native country, and a little bit of context, which I think might have been valuable, is A, is Vlad Ivanov speaking in Slovak or Czech? And B, if he is, does he have a noticeable accent? Because I think that would tell us a lot about communist Czechoslovakia of the 1980s. This secret policeman coming into Slovakia from outside and being the figure of authority, the figure of repression, I think that would say a lot. But either way, the presence of Vlad Ivanov in this film is very interesting. I mean, the person who's just doing his job, but his job is to spy on people to intimidate people to blackmail people and when necessary to kill people or have people killed but that's just his job that's just his way of working he is a cog in the communist wheel and that's just the way things are so yeah it's a fascinating role for Vlad Ivanov, but it is one of the things I am missing, one of the subtleties of this film I regret not being able to engage with, is what accent does Vlad Ivanov has? When I'm, I'm assume he's speaking Czech or Slovak, if there's even a, much of a difference, but I'm assuming he's speaking Czechoslovakian, but how much of an accent, how noticeable an accent is he speaking it in, given that he is a Romanian? And yeah, that's just one of the many things which I think is really, really fascinating about this film's servants. It says so much about people of faith. It says so much about people living under a totalitarian regime. 
about the petty indignities and sometimes the violent struggle against the system and the consequences thereof. It's really interesting to see. So, yeah, I actually think that Servants is an excellent film. If I'd had the opportunity to watch it when it first came out, I mean, initially this was released onto Curzon Home Cinema, and I waited, assuming eventually it would show up on the Google Play Store, which it still hasn't. And if I'd seen it in time, I think this would have been part of my May foreplay. I think it would have taken the place of Ball of the 41, because I do think this is one of the better foreign language films I've seen this year. It's beautifully shot, it's beautifully thought-provoking, it's powerful stuff. And if you don't mind reading subtitles and you think you can cope with its rather harsh subject matter, then I do recommend Servants, which is currently available through iTunes, and as far as I'm concerned, is a yay. And the final film I saw that seemingly is exclusive to iTunes, or actually in this case it's a movie film, which escaped onto iTunes eventually, is the Georgian film Beginning. Written and directed by Deo Kulumbegashvili, a Georgian-born French-based director, She's done lots of shorts and documentaries in the past. This is her feature-length debut. And this film was scheduled to premiere at the 2020 Cannes Film Festival. It was accepted into Cannes, but thanks to the pandemic, it got messed about with. And its official world premiere was at the 2020 Toronto Film Festival. And both of those film festivals are very, very impressive. It's also played at places like San Sebastian as well. So it's done the festival circuit and eventually got released onto Mubi and is available certain places for streaming, including iTunes. And this was also Georgia's submission to last year's International Film Oscar race. A woman who is prominent in a group of Jehovah's Witnesses who live in a remote town in Georgia, played by Aya Sukitashvili, is the wife of this Jehovah's Witness pastor, played by Ratti Onelli, who is the co-writer of this film and has collaborated frequently with Dea Kalimbegashvili on her previous shorts and documentaries. And Dea Kalimbegashvili has produced his documentary. I mean, they seem to have a long working relationship. But Ratti O'Nelli plays the pastor of this Jehovah's Witness community. And the film opens in a prayer meeting, which is then violently attacked. And in the wake of this violent attack, Ratti Onelli goes to the big city in order to talk to the elders and try and get some money to rebuild their freedom hall and leaves Iasukatashvili alone and reeling from this tragedy and desperately trying to look after her son, Saber Gogichashvili. And 
deal with the smirking detective who has been sent from Tbilisi to investigate this attack played by Kaka Kintsurashvili. As Iyasukasashvili spends more and more time alone, she starts to ponder her life, ponder her faith, ponder her marriage, and gradually starts to mentally disintegrate, which is not helped when she herself is violently attacked. So how is this woman going to break free of the environment which she is increasingly start to realise is too restrictive for her life. This is another film, a in common with many films this week, which is shot in the narrow four by three aspect ratio. And it's also a film which has a very particular style. This is a film which has the use of very many long, static shots, just putting the camera down in one position and letting the camera roll out in front of it. Given the somewhat religious overtones of the script, I was somewhat reminded of the German film from a few years ago, Stations of the Cross. I mean, that 90-odd-minute film had something like eight shots in it. I mean, beginning has very little of that but it's still very long very languid shots the opening shot of this film is as i said one of these jehovah's witnesses meetings as ratty on is giving his sermon and we see iasukatashvili come in and chastise some of the local boys including her own son and then the prayer meeting starts and there's long sermons about abraham and isaac i mean the concept of personal sacrifice which i think is very very pertinent to what happens in the rest of the film and at the end of this nine minute shot we have this dramatic attack which takes place on the church and it's shocking it comes out of nowhere but it does set us up for the rest of the film this is a cataclysmic event and it is the literal spark for to completely reassess her entire life. When she starts to try and raise her concerns, you know, oh, why are we doing this? What are we doing here? I mean, she, she's clearly having questions about her faith. She's just completely dismissed by her husband, Rationelli. You are my wife. You are the pastor's wife in our community. Your faith needs to be strong. I mean, you are a crazy woman. I mean, she is literally told in a mildly accusational way, you're being crazy. Just settle down and be a good wife. She's just dismissed out of hand. And then the husband buggers off to the big city to try and get some money to rebuild his freedom hall. And then we are just witnessing Ia Sukhateshvili for you know, very long, very staid, very static shots going through her life. And personally speaking, I wasn't exactly sure what kind of film I was watching. I mean, is this a film about a woman losing her faith? Is this a film about trying to find freedom through dangerous and subversive means? 
I mean, there's a scene between this Jehovah's Witness wife, Ayasukatashvili, and this policeman from the big city, Kaka Kutsarashvili, which has very threatening overtones and very sexually threatening overtones. But I honestly wasn't sure if this was a violation of Iyasukasashvili's personal space and personal ideologies, or if this was something she was latching onto, if this was a means of escape of her restrictive life. I genuinely wasn't sure. I mean, it becomes clear by the end of the film because the film goes on with a series of increasingly long and increasingly static shots. I mean, there's a six-minute shot, static shot, in the middle of this film, which is just Iyasukatashvili lying down on a forest floor for six minutes, not saying anything. It's that kind of film. And later in the film, there is a scene, and what I'm about to describe classifies as a spoiler, but I do believe it is the type of spoiler you need to know going in. You need to know this kind of scene is on the cards, because there's a a lengthy scene. Iyasukatashvili, one of the things which has been happening throughout the course of the film is she is starting to hear things at night. She's starting to worry that there are people outside her house. So she goes to the river behind her house and looks around, is there anybody here? And this goes on for, for a long time, only a couple of minutes. And then she is attacked by a man and raped in one unbroken shot. I mean, I didn't time this particular one, but it's got to be four or five minutes length scene. A pretty graphic rape scene. And that is one of the things which this woman has to deal with. I mean, there's so much going on here. And the events of right at the end of the film made it apparent to me what kind of film I was actually watching. Because like I said, I was not sure if this was a film about finally breaking free from a repressive society, of sinking yourself into depression after a traumatic event, of questioning your faith and your marriage and everything like that. The events of the end of the film, particularly this rape which happens about halfway through the film, it becomes clear that this film is about a complete mental deterioration. This is a woman who is losing herself. She can't continue the way things are. She can't break free from where she's at. So her mental deterioration is just rapidly accelerating and there's nothing else that can be done. And ultimately, this is a tragedy. This is a film of tragedy and not just because of the rape and the traumatic arson attack at the beginning of the film. This is a deeply troubling film about a deeply troubled woman. And yeah, it's... 
it's pretty hard going. But, you know, beautifully composed, beautifully shot with these long static shots. I think this is a film of internalised despair rather than demonstrative despair, which is not always the case in cinema nowadays, not even in world cinema nowadays. So, yeah, it's very much about the emotions of the situation rather than the actions of the situation. And yeah, I was generally asking myself for large stretches of the film, what kind of film is this? What genre is this film even in? And then the dramatic events at the end of the film tell you what kind of film it is. And by then it's too late. By then you realize, oh, this has been a descent into utter disaster and tragedy for the entire film. And and yeah, that's that's what it is. And then the very, very final scene is one of those ones that basically baffled me. The only time in the entire film that it descends into outright symbolism and outright surrealism, the images that the film leaves you on are so strange, are so clearly not reality. This is a constructed reality. This is a fantasy. This is a symbolic way of ending the film. And I'm not even sure what the symbolism is, I mean, what it's supposed to mean, what it's supposed to tell us. I am really, really not sure what it's supposed to say. And yeah, it was uh, a baffling and a strange note to leave us on. So, yeah... This is definitely an art house film. I mean, I can understand why it got into Cannes. I can understand why Georgia submitted it to the Oscars. It's beautifully constructed. Some very good acting from Iyasu Katashvili. But I'm not entirely sure how much I actually got out of this film. So, yeah, it's an interesting and somewhat harrowing film. And for me, beginning available through Mubi and some streaming platforms like iTunes, is for me a pretty reasonable meh. Netflix and chill. Passing is a prestige piece released onto Netflix. It premiered at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival and also did many of the other important festivals around the world, including places like Busan and London. So this is a potential Oscar contender and has also been directed by Rebecca Hall. Now, it is one of my mantras on this podcast that Rebecca Hall should have been given a Best Actress Oscar a couple of years ago for Christine and over the years has appeared in many other very impressive films and it has to be said some not so impressive films just this year she was in the horror film the night house which was pretty good in the past she's been in things like vicky christina barcelona iron man 3 and the excellent professor marston and the wonder women but now she has stepped behind the camera and chosen a rather interesting project to make Passing was a novel written by Nella Larson and tells the story of 
African-American women in the 1920s passing as white. And when I first saw this, I mean, the first time I, I noticed this, it was listed on the films that had come out of Sundance, and then I saw it in the brochure of the London Film Festival. I was thinking, hang on, that surely can't be the same Rebecca Hall. Because as far as I was concerned, Rebecca Hall was white. I mean, she's always played white. She's the daughter of the legendary theatre director Sir Peter Hall. But as it turns out, her mother, Maria Ewing, who was a former opera singer, her father was mixed race and spent the majority of his career as a musician passing as white. So this is a story which connected with Rebecca Hall, which resonated with Rebecca Hall, thanks to her maternal grandfather. And she directs this film about racial identity in the 1920s. Tessa Thompson plays a Harlem doctor's wife who is out shopping one day in the blistering heat and to get out of the inclement weather, she goes to a nearby hotel. But she has her hat brim pulled way down over her eyes. She is constantly checking around to make sure she will be allowed into this white space. But she is light-skinned enough to just about get away with it. And as she is furtively having a cool drink in this hotel bar, she notices across the room Ruth Nagger, who she went to school with, but moved away when they were younger. But now Ruth Nagger is back in town and wants to reconnect with Tessa Thompson, something which Tessa Thompson is a little bit skittish about in this restrictive white environment, but she eventually is persuaded to go up to Ruth Negger's hotel room, where it emerges that not only is Ruth Negger passing as white, she is also married to a racist white doctor played by Alexander Skarsgård. Horrified at what Ruth Negger is doing, Tessa Thompson goes back to Harlem and her doctor husband, Andre Holland, and tries to forget about this encounter. But Ruth Nagger insists on trying to reconnect with Tessa Thompson, and eventually Tessa Thompson breaks down, and Ruth Nagger starts spending a lot of time in Harlem with Tessa Thompson and Andre Holland, and also the black community around there. But as Ruth Nagger spends more and more time with her family, Tessa Thompson's insecurities and jealousies, not only about Ruth Nagger's ability to mingle in the whiter world, but also the amount of time that Ruth Nagger is spending with Andre Holland, concerns about the way Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nagger are living their lives start coming to the fore. This is not exactly the film I 
anticipated. If somebody like, say, Spike Lee had directed this movie, it would have been very confrontational, very blunt. It would have shook you by your lapels and said, look at what people had to do in the past. I mean, were they making the right choice? Can we judge this person for passing as white? What does that say about the friendship? What does that say about the relationship? But Rebecca Hall takes a much more subtle approach than that. A much more understated approach than that. And focuses, in my opinion, on something a little bit more broad and perhaps a little bit more interesting. I mean, maybe this was something from the original novel by Nella Larson, but I think the strongest aspect of this film, or the subject which the film seems to spend the longest time on, is the relationship between Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nagger, and Tessa Thompson's own self-identity. Tessa Thompson is a respected doctor's wife in Harlem. She is constantly doing charity work for the advancement of coloured people, all that kind of stuff. But her husband, Andre Holland, is sick of the racist environments in which she's living in. And throughout the course of the film, Andre Holland is saying, we need to leave the country. There is no future for a black family here in New York. I mean, they have two young sons. We need to leave the country. We can find somewhere else where black people are more accepted. But Tessa Thompson refuses to acknowledge this. She refuses to even accept that her sons need to have the talk about how to act as a young black man in America. I mean, and that has been going on for centuries. I mean, this is the way you need to act unless you don't want to be killed. I mean, in the 1920s, you might well have been lynched. I mean, even in New York, you might well have been lynched. And today, you might get shot by the police. But the fundamental talk remains the same. And yet, Tessa Thompson does not even want to accept the necessity for this to happen. On some level, she is in denial about the country she is living in. And that is brought into focus when this woman comes into her life who seems perfectly capable and willing to live in the white world, to be accepted in the white world. And is this something to be resentful of or admiring of? I mean, when it is necessary, when it is convenient, Tessa Thompson can and will pass, like when she goes into the lobby of a white upmarket hotel. But she isn't living her life that way, yet Ruth Negger is. And that is one of the things which she is resentful of Ruth Negger for doing, the confidence that Ruth Negger has in doing this. And also the deep, deep compartmentalization that Ruth Nagger has. I mean, her husband, Alexander Skarsgård, is an outright racist. And yet Ruth Nagger married him for the sake of convenience, for the sake of a comfortable life. 
Yet this random event of meeting her childhood friend in a hotel lobby in Brooklyn puts Ruth Negger's journey on a completely different path. She now does want to reconnect with her African-American roots. She does want to have that same cultural identity she had as a child. She wants to have it all. She wants to have both. She is trying to have her cake and eat it. And that doesn't always work. And Ruth Negger is taking so many risks. It's such a cavalier attitude to this potentially devastating deception being uncovered. That that's another thing which Tessa Thompson isn't necessarily happy about. I mean, she knows that if Ruth Negger keeps taking these risks, something's going to happen. And maybe there's a small part of Tessa Thompson's life which wants that to happen, since Ruth Negger is spending, in Tessa Thompson's mind, a disturbing amount of time with Andre Holland. So there's all this insecurity, all this jealousy, all this identity issues, and it's all swirling around. And it's very much a character piece. It has elements of the racial politics and the identity politics that is inherent in this situation. But more than anything, it is a character piece of this woman, Tessa Thompson, who has this elements of chaos introduced into her life, yet she can't help but be drawn to her. I mean, there is something magnetic, there is something compelling about Ruth Nagger, and Tessa Thompson is drawn into it, as are many people around her, both black and white. But this house of cards must inevitably fall at some point, and what will happen when it does? And yeah, the character piece, and it's a very understated character piece. You're not always entirely clear of the motivations of Tessa Thompson, the emotions of Tessa Thompson. We can imply certain things, but we are never outright told. It's a much more subtle film than that. It allows you to observe these subtle interactions these quiet conversations and make your own conclusions. It's very, very understated. It's very subtle. And I think it's very, very impressive. It has been shot in beautiful black and white and also in narrow 4x3 Academy ratio, very much like Servants a little earlier. And similarly to Servants, it has. A very stylized, very mannered way in which it has been shot. The framing and the composition of these shots is very, very impressive. It kind of reminded me a bit of silent cinema. The use of extreme close ups, the use of the emotions running across the face of somebody to tell a story rather than big dramatic gestures but I mean later silent cinema people like Mary Pickford and Greta Garbo who were much more impressed by their use of their faces rather than grand dramatic gestures 
that's the kind of silent cinema I think this is evoking. But it has a very structured look to it, so a very composed look to it. I mean, I think Rebecca Hall, as director, does some very, very impressive things and has some really impressive emotional beats to her story. I mean, the way that Tessa Thompson's insecurities and jealousies comes to the fore, the way that Ruth Nagger has a deep compartmentalisation and also a somewhat codependent relationship with Tessa Thompson and Andre Holland. She needs to come to Harlem as often as she can and spend time with this family who are living as black. And she becomes the spoiling aunt for the two young kids who are probably 10 to 12, somewhere in that region. The older boy, it's clear, is having something of a crush on Aunt Ruth Nagger. And this complex, intricate interweaving of these lives and the way they rub up against each other, the way they support each other, and the way they clash against each other, it all comes out in this very intriguing, very understated way. Although in places it does have that blunt confrontational style of someone like Spike Lee, the very opening scene is Tessa Thompson going into a toy shop. I mean, the reason she is in you know the white part of New York is she's going to every toy shop she can to find a particular toy for her son's birthday. And in this toy shop, there are a couple of white customers who are discussing a Piccaninny doll. And that's one of the very, very first things you see in this film, in this beautiful, stark, black and white, constructed format. So it it does have those moments. I mean, it, it does have discussions with you know, the white liberal writers who are spending time in the Harlem jazz clubs, the most prominent of which is the excellent Bill Camp, a very, very underrated character actor. Bill Camp has been awesome for so many years, but he plays this famous novelist who is, you know, quote-unquote slumming it in the jazz clubs of Harlem. And the discussions that Tessa Thompson has with Bill Camp this idea that, yes, you are showing your liberalism by supporting these black charities, by coming to these black jazz clubs, but still, it's just a bit of exoticism, isn't it? And Tessa Thompson calls Bill Camp out about this, you know, gently calls Bill Camp out about this, and Bill Camp takes it in reasonably good humour. But those conversations are had in certain places. But more than anything, the racial and identity components of this story are just a major part of the character study that this is. I think more than anything, this is a character study of Tessa Thompson. And it's an excellent one. The acting of Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nagger is excellent. Andre Holland is excellent as well, and the supporting roles 
from Belkamp and Alexander Skarsgård are also very good. I mean, Alexander Skarsgård is in this film surprisingly little, given that he is the husband of Ruth Negger. But you know, the whole point is that when Alexander Skarsgård's away, Ruth Negger goes to Harlem. So yeah, it's a supporting role for Alexander Skarsgård and indeed Belkamp, but they're both excellent. And all around, this is a really, really impressive film. And I do hope that come Oscar season, this is given some serious love. It is going to be intriguing seeing where the prestige goes. There's a chance that Passing will get a Best Picture nomination. I think Ruth Negger is a reasonable shout for Best Supporting Actress. Indeed, as she was a few years ago in a not dissimilar role in Loving. But yeah, this is, I think, an excellent thought-provoking film. But more than anything, it is an excellent character study. And on those terms, I did really, really like Passing on Netflix. And for me, it is a yay. So the other Netflix film I had the chance to watch this week is at the completely different end of the spectrum. I was in a situation where I had some time to kill and I didn't want to concentrate too hard on anything. So I eventually settled on the Netflix thriller Intrusion. Which has a reasonably impressive cast and some somewhat interesting people behind the camera. It is directed by Adam Salke, whose big hit early in his career was a 2005 queer short film called Dare, which was widely admired. It got on some many of those compilation videos that are prevalent in the queer short film community. Eventually, Dare was expanded into a feature film in 2009. And then Adam Salke's second feature-length effort after Dare was a film called I Smile Back in 2015. A tiny, tiny independent film, which did do the festival circuit. I'm not 100% sure it ever got official legal distribution here in the UK. but. In my opinion, Sarah Silverman, in her leading role in the film I Smile Back as a not very recovering alcoholic, a wife and mother who has basically lost herself to the bottle and she makes half-hearted efforts to clean herself up, but it's just not happening. And she doesn't particularly care about it. And I think Sarah Silverman in one of the very, very rare, completely straight performances I've ever seen from her. I think she was genuinely worthy of an Oscar for that film, I Smile Back. So if you can find I Smile Back, I do actually recommend that film. And sprinkled in between those were lots of shorts and TV episodes, but the third full-length feature film that Adam Salkin has made as director is Intrusion, written by Chris Barling, who's had an odd career. He's written and directed a couple of low-budget horror films, 
But he has some somewhat notable things on his writing CV. He wrote the film Buried, which I actually think is very, very good, starring Ryan Reynolds as a contractor in Iraq, buried alive in a coffin with a cell phone. He also wrote the film The Sea of Trees, which Gus Van Sant directed, and did the festival circuit, but got absolutely critically panned. And Chris Sparling has also written the disaster movie Greenland, which, God help us, has spawned a sequel. So, yeah, Chris Sparling's had an odd career, and his latest film as writer is this film Intrusion, in which Frida Pinto has moved to the New Mexico desert with her architect husband, Logan Marshall Green. She moved from Boston with her husband to this small town in New Mexico where she works as a child psychologist and they live in this beautiful modern house in the desert which Logan Marshall Green has designed and built for them. So this couple seems perfectly happy. Logan Marshall Green's a little bit uptight, a little bit over-ordered, but they're in their dream house in the New Mexico desert, and things seem to be going smoothly. But one night, they come home from dinner out together, and the house has been broken into. It appears that nothing has been taken, but this naturally starts freaking out Frida Pinto, and she starts worrying about their new life, and starts to slightly start worrying about her uptight husband, Logan Marshall Green. And then, a few weeks later, whilst they're still in the house, another home invasion happens, and Logan Marshall Green takes out a gun, which he didn't tell Frida Pinto he had, and shoots dead the three home invaders. And with this sudden revelation that her husband has been lying to her in keeping this gun hidden from her, Frida Pinto starts questioning everything about her husband, everything about their marriage, and everything about why they moved to the middle of the desert in New Mexico. And even in this brand new, starkly modern house, the plumbing is making more noise than you would expect it to. So where is that noise coming from? This is kind of a stupid movie. This is a B-movie thriller. It's the kind of film that a third of the way through it, there's enough tidbits of information which are put out that you know exactly where this film is going. You know, how much do I know my husband? What is the truth? Is it possible that he is connected to the missing teenage girl? that is ostensibly mentioned early in the film. Why is the plumbing making all that noise in this brand new modern house? I mean, it's setting out stuff 
right from the start you know exactly where it's going and it's not really trying too hard to do anything new or original or innovative with it it has a typical kind of protagonist i mean a, a nice woman with a caring profession she is good at her job as a child psychologist and that by the way also allows for some very efficient exposition because one of her teenage clients says i don't want to move away and frida pinto says well i moved from boston to new mexico with my architect husband and i got through it and you know it allows us to see her in action to see her profession and also gives us information that we need to know in a more or less natural way so yeah efficient script writing but there's enough stuff that gets dropped in here and there that we start to look at Logan Marshall Green with a little bit of a side eye. He's a very ordered person, very neat. He's the kind of person who needs the documents on his desk completely squared with the desk. Everything is ordered, everything is neat. He's that kind of person. He's also tiny bit emotionally manipulative it is revealed early in the film that frida pinto is a cancer survivor and the first time you so see her she's having a jog through the desert to her sparkling new modern house has a shower and as she's having a shower she feels something in her breast so i think oh okay cancer scare that becomes a significant part of the plot. I mean, the emotionally manipulative way that Logan Marshall Green says it. I mean, I supported you through your cancer when you were so depressed you couldn't even get up off the floor. I stood by you through that. You should stand by me now. And it's a complete false equivalency, but it does show the emotionally manipulative way that Logan Marshall Green interacts with Frida Pinto. He is constantly making the argument that in some way Frida Pinto is indebted to him because he stuck by her. And a loving marriage doesn't really work that way, Logan Marshall Green. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what you're doing here. So, yeah, all the way through this, we are in a constant state of questioning everything that is coming out of the mouth of Logan Marshall Green. What kind of person is this? What kind of marriage? is this what secrets will be revealed i mean pretty much everything is on the table but like i said enough breadcrumbs are put out there early enough in the film that i could see every single step that this film would take about a third of the way through and it's done in a very nuts and bolts way it is efficient filmmaking, as I said. I mean, the use of location tracking apps on mobile phones is, I think, becoming an increasingly common and an increasingly effective method of increasing tension. I mean, nowadays, it's not a case of, oh, look, there's a person pulling up to the house. Will the person sneaking around realize it before the door opens? Now, it's where is the location tracker on my husband's mobile? And we as an audience see, oh, the mobile phone's getting closer and closer and she's you know, doing something else. So, 
yeah, using technology in that way to increase tension, efficient, efficient use of exposition. And yeah, I, I think that's the best I can say about this film. It is efficient. It's not very original. It's not particularly good. I mean, by the end, I think Logan Marshall Green is overacting a little bit too much. I think Logan Marshall Green is a decent enough actor. I've seen him in other things and I've been impressed. But he was let off the leash by the end of this film. Uh, and I think a tiny bit more restraint might have been more effective. But either way, it's exactly what you expect from this kind of B-movie thriller. I mean, I thought it might be a B-movie thriller, and that's exactly what I got. A pretty standard, pretty basic, pretty efficient B-movie thriller. And yeah, there are worse things on Netflix, but there are certainly better things on Netflix. So for me, this is a pretty low, pretty dispassionate meh. Coming attractions. It's going to be another very busy week coming up next week. Not least of which because I'm due for my booster jab and an eye appointment. So, yeah. Squeezing all my films in amongst all that lot is going to be complicated in and of itself. But regardless, cinematically we have four films coming out. Probably the biggest of which is the new Disney animated film Encanto which, in common with so many animated features this year, features original songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda. But this one is set in a magical, semi-mystical Colombia, where a family of people imbued with magic powers all live together happily, but inevitably in a Disney movie, one of this family doesn't have any magical powers, and when the house's magic is threatened and might be disappearing, it is up to our plucky every girl in order to go and try and fix it and bring magic back. Looks pretty typical for a Disney movie, but it is a Disney movie, and getting onto a century into their existence of making animated features... They know what they're doing at this point, so yes, I am eager to see Encanto. The other pretty big release this week is another seeming heavyweight Oscar contender. It's the second Ridley Scott film in as many months, both of them starring Adam Driver, The House of Gucci, in which Adam Driver plays the heir to the Gucci fashion empire, but marries the scheming and manipulative Lady Gaga, and tragedy ensues, or at least scandal ensues. So yeah, looks really cool. Ridley Scott going back to his all the money in the world kind of attitude. And yeah, it, it seems that this is the one that the Oscars are going to be paying attention to rather than Ridley Scott's last film, The Last Jewel. And I have to say, I really, really liked The Last Jewel. So yeah, it's going to be interesting seeing which one I personally prefer. I get the impression I'm going to like The Last Jewel more than The House of Gucci. But regardless, let's see what Lady Gaga's potential Oscar-winning performance is all about. Or at least that's the buzz anyway. 
There's also a small British film out this week, which is actually written and directed by Reggie Yates, the TV presenter, DJ, occasional documentary presenter. He's been a personality for getting on two decades now. And yeah, Reggie Yates wrote and directed a film, which apparently is somewhat autobiographical. It's called Pirates. And it's set on New Year's Eve in 1999 as three friends from the more urban areas of London are travelling around town desperately trying to find tickets to the best millennium party ever, all accompanied by a soundtrack of UK Garage. So, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Maybe a black, older teenager version of Superbad or something, maybe. But anyway, Pirates does look pretty cool. And finally, the last cinematic film released this week is a Romanian film called Bad Luck Banging or Loony Porn, which is a rather unwieldy title. But this one, the Golden Bear at the 2020 Berlin Film Festival, and it was the second time that director Radu Jude won a major prize at the Berlin Film Festival, and then immediately proceeded to make public statements about how film festivals were crass and overproduced, and it's all about the red carpet rather than actual artistry and all that kind of stuff. And this was after he'd just won a Berlin Bear for the second time. But, yeah, I haven't actually liked the two Radu Jude films I've seen already. The film he won the Silver Bear for a few years ago, Afarim, I didn't especially like. And I also saw a film of his called I Do Not Care If We Go Down in History as Barbarians, which I don't think ever got an official UK release, but I did see it at the London Film Festival a couple of years back. And... Yeah, that was a decent enough film, but very, very specifically about Romanian history and culture. But yeah, I'm somewhat ambivalent about Radu Jude as both a person and a director, but this latest film does look rather interesting, particularly since Romania submitted it to the International Film Oscar this year. It tells the story of a respected female teacher in a Bucharest high school who has a personal sex tape she made with her husband released to the public. And instantly the conservative, pearl-clutching parents at her prestigious school insist that she resigns because of this scandal. But she's not going to take that. She actually stands up for herself and tries to get her personal life out of the public sphere of this witch hunt, essentially. And yeah, that does sound rather interesting. It has the potential to ask some very uncomfortable questions about misogyny and the ways we treat privacy in the modern day 
And that is what Radu Jude tends to do. I mean, Afarim was about Romanian history and was part of the Ottoman Empire, and it was very, very much about Romanian racism, particularly towards Muslims. And I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians, it was somewhat the same. That was about somebody who is lauded as a hero in Romanian history because he collaborated with the Nazis in the Second World War. And Radu Jude was trying to redress the balance, saying, no, look, the, this guy did terrible things, why are we praising him? So yeah, I think Radu Jude likes poking Romanian society, but I think in poking attitudes to women and privacy, I think he might have a universal appeal to it as well. So yeah, I do want to check out Radu Jude's new film, Bad Luck Banging or Loony Porn. <sighs> Weird title. Why don't you just choose one or the other? But regardless. There's also a new film which is being released this week onto Sky Cinema. So it's very, very easy for me to watch. But honestly, I'm not entirely sure I'm going to bother. In fact, I'm probably not going to bother. But in case I do end up watching it, I do want to announce the fact that there is a Sky Cinema Christmas film called A Boy Called Christmas, which is apparently based on a children's book and has a really good cast of English actors, people like Maggie Smith and Jim Broadbent and Toby Jones, uh, the faces I recognise just from watching the trailer a couple of times. Basically, it's uh, a magical, family-friendly or kid-friendly fantasy where a boy goes on a quest and discovers Christmas doing it in a rather non-religious way and it looks very twee very family friendly very safe so it doesn't particularly appeal to me even though it's got somewhat of the same plot to the animated film from a couple of years ago klaus which i did really like but this looks very kiddie very cheesy so i'm probably not going to watch it but i might end up having to so i might as well announce that a boy called christmas is out this week on sky cinema there have been a couple of films added to the streaming list of things to watch this week. The first of which is a film called The Last Days of Capitalism. Now, as I constantly say, I am a big fan of two-handed films, or films which are mostly about dialogue, mostly about talking. And that basically seems to be what The Last Days of Capitalism is. It's two people, a man and a woman, who spend 72 hours together in a Las Vegas penthouse suite. And judging by the trailer, the woman might be a sex worker. I'm not exactly sure about that. But either way, it looks like three days just spending time together talking to each other discussing philosophy, discussing relationships, and that has the potential to be really, really fascinating. Equally, it could be unbearably pretentious, but I am still very, very interested in the last days of capitalism. And also added to the streaming list this week, 
is a very, very strange case. Now, in general, I watch and review films which become available in the year in which I am doing it. Being here in the UK, occasionally that means that I'm a couple of years late from a US release. I mean, last year, Wild Nights with Emily was technically two years old when I watched it, and this earlier this year, Mouthpiece was technically a year old, but it got a legal release here in the UK. But this week, a film has been released onto streaming platforms, which came out in 2015. So a six-year-old film has been made available, I think, for the first time in the UK. So that's a bit of a grey area as far as I'm concerned, and I might not have bothered putting it on the list, apart from a rather surprising coincidence. The film is called The Rumper Butts, and it tells the story of a couple who are musicians together, they're in a band together, but eventually they sell out and become kids entertainers called the Rumper Butts, and they're miserable. Despite the fact they are very successful at what they're doing, they're selling out to filled out rooms with full of toddlers, they're not happy with each other and are on the verge of splitting up, until a possibly mystical character shows up and gives them a second chance. And that, in and of itself, sounds like a pretty cool premise for a film, and I might have added it to the list anyway. But as I started looking at this film, The Romper Butts, I realised that the couple at the centre of this film, Corey Gardner and Jason Hamill, are better known as the husband and wife indie pop duo Mates of State. Now, you, my loyal listeners, might not recognise the name Mates of State, but I certainly do. Between 2007 and 2016, I did a music podcast called The Aerobarous Podcast. And Mates of State were a band I played several times on my music podcast. And for a while, they were widely played on podcasts because there are certain places where you can get pod safe music, you know, music you can play without licensing. And one of the bigger ones constantly had Mates of State music on it. So there were loads and loads and loads of podcasts who played Mates of State. And I was one of them, and I really liked them. So here, 13-odd years after I played them on my music podcast, they're in a film, and it's a film where the plot actually looks kind of interesting. So, yeah. I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to watch my old Podsafe Music friends, Mates of State, in a movie called The Rumper Butts. So, yeah, that's been added to the list on the streaming platforms. 
Released onto Amazon Prime video this week is a film called Queen Pins, which is apparently based on a true story in which housewives Kristen Bell and Kirby Howell Baptiste set up a multi-million dollar scheme forging coupons. The little things you snip out of the newspaper and save a couple of cents on bleach or whatever. Somehow, this pair of housewives managed to set up a multi-million dollar scheme around coupons. And apparently this is based on a true story. And they are being pursued by an overly officious loss adjuster, Paul Walter Hauser, and an exasperated post-inspector played by Vince Vaughn. So, yeah, that sounds like it could be fun, and that's being released onto Amazon Prime Video this week. And on Netflix, we have yet another big-name actor who is stepping behind the camera with Halle Berry making her directorial debut and starring in a film called Bruised, where she plays a retired MMA fighter who is given one last shot at redemption and one last shot at her family when her long-estranged son comes back into her life. So, yeah, could be a little bit rocky, could be a lot of things. But, yeah, Bruised does intrigue me. I mean, as I always say, it does interest me when an actor steps behind the camera. So, yeah, Halle Berry directing herself in Bruised is going to be out on Netflix next week. As is another somewhat cheesy Christmas movie, which Netflix have done so many of, they seem to be competing with Hallmark to have these cheesy Christmas movies out and just put a little bit more money into it. And this has a very cheesy premise. It's called A Castle for Christmas, where an American author, played by Brooke Shields, who I haven't seen on screen in a very, very long time, but Brooke Shields is escaping from some sort of scandal, so she decides to run away to her ancestor's homeland of Scotland and buys herself a castle in Scotland from the local duke played by Carrie Elwes. But wouldn't you know it romantic sparks start flying between this slightly more mature couple but it is complicated by the fact that Carrie Elwes has absolutely no intention of selling his family home to a dirty American he just needed the cash, and his intention is to make it so unpleasant for Brooke Shields in this castle that she just gives up and goes home and leaves her deposit behind, which Carrie always can then use to renovate his castle. But romantic entanglements ensue. This one was actually directed by Mary Lambert, who has a very impressive career, or at least it did have a very impressive career back in the late 80s, early 90s. She directed loads of Madonna's videos, including Like a Prayer. She directed the original version of Pet Cemetery, but since then has kind of drifted off a little bit and has even done some sci-fi original movies. But 
yeah, Mary Lambert is now doing this Hallmark-esque movie for Netflix. But yeah, it does look kind of charming. I mean, a Christmas romance with a slightly more mature couple than we usually see in this kind of thing. In fact, in two weeks' time, there's going to be a gay Hallmark-esque Christmas movie released onto Netflix, and that I'm definitely interested in. So, yeah, there's so many of these out, and yes, they're cheesy, but sometimes you just need a sorbet, sometimes you just need a palate cleanser, and that is exactly what a castle for Christmas looks like. So, yes, I will probably at some point be checking out A Castle for Christmas on Netflix. My other current highest priorities on Netflix are another one of those cheesy Hallmark-esque Christmas romances, Love Hard, the spooky family-friendly film Night Books, the more adult spooky film Night Teeth, the intriguing quasi-documentary from Mexico, A Cop Movie, and also the documentary which has the potential to be incredibly harrowing in procession. Those are my highest priorities on the Netflix lists. And on the streaming lists, my highest priorities are the British indie movie Between Waves, where a woman tries to connect with her partner who may or may not be travelling between dimensions. There's the Canadian erotic thriller on Amazon Prime video, The Voyeurs. There's the American indie film, The Way You Look Tonight, in which a man uses a dating app and every single person he meets on this app might actually be different aspects of the same person. So, yeah, that's an intriguing look at identity or has potential, at least. There's also the Todd Haynes documentary about the Velvet Underground, which is released onto Apple Plus TV. And the American indie movie Wild Indian, I'm still very fascinated about, where Michael Gray Eyes plays a Native American man who covered up something horrible in his childhood, and now it's back to haunt him and might be trying to take him away into the nice, comfortable assimilated white life in which he is now living so yeah that looks very very intriguing and that is on the streaming list so that's all the stuff i've got to get to this week i'm still recording as and when i can my july foreplay which is taking an inordinate amount of time but i've been very busy so that at some point will be coming as well and before I leave you, a reminder of all the yays in this particular episode. It was actually a pretty good week. Especially when you add in Petite Maman, Celine Scammer's film, which is thought-provoking and adorable, and I do recommend that in the cinemas. And on streaming platforms, Ride the Eagle on its own terms is well worth checking out. It does exactly what it sets out to do and does it in a charming way. Very engaging performances from both Jake Johnson and Darcy Carden. At the art house end of the streaming platforms, I do recommend the Slovak film Servants. It's very stylized. 
but it is a very meditative statement about compromise and living under a totalitarian regime. And on Netflix, I think Passing is excellent. Rebecca Hall not only is a great actress who should have won an Oscar for Christine, but it turns out she's also a great director and screenwriter. Passing has, actually quite similarly to Servants, it has a very stylized approach, a very structured approach to framing and blocking, but it's got some emotional intensity, some emotional truths in it. It goes in directions I didn't expect it to go, and yeah, I think Passing is an excellent, excellent film on Netflix. So that brings me to the close of this particular episode, and all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay, or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>